Tonight's reading will be taken from Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 28. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with all his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is God's word. Let me uh, lead us in prayer together. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, a servant such as uh, Henry Francis Light, able to put uh, biblical truth to wonderful music. And Father, we've expressed in our words an extraordinary resolve that we want to take up our cross and follow you. Father, please, would we indeed be reminded what a wonderful spirit dwells within us, what a wonderful Father you are, what a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ is. So persuade us afresh of these truths, so we would indeed deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. And uh, let me add my welcome. Uh, my name is Matt Fuller, again one of the ministers or staff here. And uh, you are indeed very welcome. Please do uh, say hello afterwards if uh, we've not met. Always wonderful this time of year to meet lots of uh, new folk. Uh, moving to London for the first time to study, to work. It is a great uh, delight to welcome you. And as Simon said, hopefully join the family. Join the uh, church family quickly. If it's this one, wonderful. We'd love to welcome you. Now this, uh, this section of Matthew we've uh, had read kindly by Gina. I guess the question is, how much do you value your soul? How much is your life worth? I mean, if someone asked you, if you had to put a figure on your life, what would your life be worth? The government says you're worth 1.3 million pounds. Do you know that? Uh, that's a notional figure. Um, but uh, when the Department of Transport uh, considers um, building any new road safety scheme and has to work out, oh, is it worth building this new bridge, this new tunnel, etc., etc., uh, in order to do the opportunity cost, the notional figure of um, losing a human life and the associated lack of work and grief caused is 1.3 million pounds. Did you know that? Again, it's a notional figure. You can't trade in Great Aunt Maud um, or look at the person next to you and say, well, you're quite nice, but 1.3 million. 
It's a notional figure that the statisticians use. But how much is your life worth? How much is your life on this world worth? If someone, no one is, of course, no one can do this, but if someone came to you and said, you have a choice this evening. Uh, When you go home, you're going to get hit and you'll die. Or you can have another 30 years of life. What's that worth to you? What would you pay? Or, even worse, your child, your spouse, your sibling. What would you pay? Die tonight, 30 more years. What would you pay? What's it worth? Presumably you'd sell, wouldn't you? You'd sell whatever you happen to own. A house or flat if you have one, a car if you have one, your stuff. And how much is a life worth? Can't put a figure on a life, can you? Notionally, perhaps, but nothing more. What price? Now, Jesus isn't asking that question this evening. He's asking a far more significant one in verse 26. Because it's the question, I will come to it in turn. But what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world now and yet forfeits his soul in eternity? It's a more significant question. How much is eternal life worth? What would you pay? If you're joining us, uh, we've been a few weeks in this little section of Matthew's Gospel. We're working our way through chapters 14 to 18 of Matthew's Gospel. We haven't missed out the rest. We've been slowly over the years working our way to this point. This is the, the fourth of five main teaching chunks of uh, Matthew's Gospel. And the main issue that comes up throughout it is there's division. Uh, we've called this series The Controversial Christ because there's division going on. At this point, chapters 14 to 18, the disciples are becoming clearer in their understanding of who Jesus is. Opposition is growing and there's a desire to kill him. There's a parting of the ways. He's controversial and he's dividing. And the last two chapters, have largely, we've largely seen that hostility and opposition to Jesus. That's what's been going on. Tonight, though, of course, he's addressing his disciples. If you were here last week, it was a good point, a good moment in the Gospel. You just um, you can look back. That little heading, the NIV, gives it Peter's confession of Christ. It's a good moment. Chapter 16, verse 15. Who do you say I am? Says Jesus. And Simon Peter answers, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. He's getting it right. Good. But now Jesus wants to say, okay, you've understood who I am, the Christ, that is the promised king of the Old Testament who will save or deliver his people. But I now need you to understand a little bit more. Because the sort of Christ I am is a suffering Christ. One who suffers, dies, and then there's glory. Oh, and more than that, if you're going to follow me, your path will be the same. Suffering, death, then glory. That's the path you'll follow. Following me, says Jesus, is not easy. There's cost involved to following after me. Uh, some would have heard already. I, uh, one of the books I enjoyed over the summer was a terrific biography of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a, a German pastor. Uh, in the 30s and um, was a significant part of the opposition to uh, Adolf Hitler as he rose in the 30s and opposed and indeed was part of the the group trying to assassinate him. 
uh, during the Second World War. Now, the thing that drove Bonhoeffer mad about Germany in the 1930s was he used this phrase, there is cheap grace in Germany. Cheap grace. And what we need to remember or go back to is a biblical, costly grace. Because cheap grace is no good. This is here's how he defined it. Cheap grace is to hear the gospel preached as follows. You've sinned, but now everything is forgiven. So stay as you are and enjoy the consolations of forgiveness. That's cheap grace. Stay as you are. The problem, the problem of such a proclamation is that it contains no demand for discipleship. By contrast, here's costly grace. Costly grace confronts us with a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken and contrite spirit. It's costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. But it's grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, to follow me is a pleasure. And in Bonhoeffer's um, evaluation of Germany in the 1930s, He said, the problem here is cheap grace. Cheap grace means you can sit in church on a Sunday and say, the Jews are being persecuted, and they're being rounded up, and they're being sent off to extermination camps. But I'm all right. I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven. And I'm fine. And don't worry about them. And Bonhoeffer says, that's cheap grace that allows you just to sit there and think, I'm okay, I don't care about anyone else. Costly grace says, I'm going to serve Jesus Christ, and that causes me to stand up and say, there's a problem here, we need to act. Do you see the difference? Cheap grace, I'm forgiven, so who cares? I can do what I want, live as I want. Costly grace says, Jesus is both my saviour and my Lord, and now I live for him and I follow him. Of course, you can fall off the horse on the other side. So there's cheap grace, don't want that. Costly grace, yes, that's what you want. A grace that says Jesus has died to forgive my sins, but now I'm going to follow him and give things up and be changed. There's power to change in costly grace. If you fall off the horse the other side, just legalism. When I make sacrifices for Jesus, that's what saves me. He's not saying that. No, salvation is always a free gift. But if you genuinely receive the salvation that Jesus offers, you'll change. You'll have Jesus not just as Savior, but as Lord. And your life will change to live for him. Costly grace. Bonhoeffer summed up this passage memorably famously. When when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Did you know that? You see the implications of that. Let's work through them. Two points. That's encouraging, isn't it? Two points. And you'll see the pattern. Jesus must suffer and die before glory. His disciples must suffer and die before glory. Why would you expect any different to the one you claim as Lord and Master if you're a Christian? Let's work through them briefly. Let's work through them. First then, um, uh, yeah, sorry, it's a silly thing to say. 21 to 23 then. Jesus must suffer and die before glory. Let's read it. Chapter 16 and verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must do, well, three things. From that time on, they've got that he's the Christ, the promised king of the Old Testament who will come and save his people. 
Now you need to understand what sort of Christ I am. Three things I must do, must happen. You see them? He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the, what do you want to call them in contemporary language? Laymen, vicars, theology professors. Something like that probably is a modern equivalent. So first then, he must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law first. Secondly, he must be killed. Thirdly, on the third day be raised again. Those three things must happen. That was always God's plan. So notice when Jesus says suffer, that's not just physically suffer, that's suffer death. Suffer murder at the hands of others. That's what he's talking about. There's always God's plan. Always throughout the Old Testament, in in numerous places. Here's one of the most famous ones, of course, Isaiah 53. Very familiar, hopefully, if you've been a Christian for a while. But you see, this is the sort of suffering that Jesus is talking about. Isaiah puts it this way, predicting Jesus. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. Him for us. That's the suffering and death that always had to take place. You and I, for the way we treated God, deserve his rejection. Jesus deserves only blessing on the cross. There's a swap. Jesus takes rejection, we receive blessing. It was always going to be that way. It had to happen. Now, what do the disciples make of this? Verse um, 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Now, Peter, he's always good and and, uh, first up. But presumably, he's just been told of you here last week, Peter, you are the rock. You're rocky. And upon you, I'm going to build my church. Brilliant, thinks Peter. Now, given that I'm um, significant and one of the first and uh, uh, preeminent amongst these disciples, I probably need to take Jesus in hand here. Because um, he's presumably a little weary. He's been teaching a lot and and, uh, healing people. Uh, so probably he's just a little bit exhausted, a little bit overwrought. I need to just place my rocky pastoral hand upon his shoulder and say, Jesus, a good night's sleep is what you need. Calm down. Something like that. Jesus' response is very strong. Verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Yes, I called you the rock upon which I'm going to build my church, but now you're just a rock of obstacle to me. You're in my way. Very strong, isn't it? You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. The striking thing is, of course, Peter thought he was helping. Peter thought... No, I've got in, I've got in mind the things of men, and your job as the, as the king is to come and conquer everyone and lead us to victory. I, I'm thinking in a godly fashion. And Jesus says, you've completely misunderstood who I am. Yes, you, you're Christ-centered, that's good, but you have, you are not cross-centered, and that is wrong. You want me as your king, but you don't want me to suffer, and you don't want to suffer. You've misunderstood. You're good at knowing I'm the Christ. You're very bad at following me as one who will suffer. That's quite a common 
mistake. Many today will be very happy to say, Jesus, impressive, king, good, dying on a cross, in my place, mm, don't like that. About two weeks ago, I went to, had to go to a conference uh, in central London. It was an unusual conference, about 500-odd uh, vicars. And uh, the two main speakers were, at one end of the spectrum, Rowan Williams, um, Archbishop of Canterbury. On the other end of the spectrum, Tim Keller, who is a reformed Calvinist Presbyterian uh, minister. Now, those two are quite a long way apart uh, theologically. So it was interesting. Uh, they were both meant to be speaking on how do you build a church in a world city. Add to the various terms. Tim Keller spoke in the afternoon. And uh, the main thing, really, that he dwelt upon at some length was you will never change people's lives without the cross. And he gave illustration after illustration, anecdote after anecdote, of the fact that on the cross, Jesus swapped places with us. He took punishment that we deserve, so we get blessing that he deserved. He just gave a whole succession of illustrations of what this looks like and what this means. And just said, look, I have to tell you, theologically, that's what the Bible says, pragmatically, it works. It changes people's lives. Afterwards, so many of the ministers there were spitting with anger. They hated it. There was outrage. I mean, literally, the people say, I am outraged. They stomped out of the room. How dare he say that to me? Who is this fool that they've brought in to address us? Absolute contempt. Quite happy being Christ-centered. They don't want to cross. That was the issue for Peter. But do notice this language that Jesus uses, verse 23... It's the strongest language he uses towards his disciples. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, you are tempting me to do the wrong thing. Because Jesus was cross-centered. And if you read the Bible, it's cross-centered. And if you want to build a church, you've got to be cross-centered. And certainly this is what we want to be here, cross-centered. That's the heart of the Christian faith. When Jesus dies on a cross and rises again. Now, these things are, you, know, you don't quite understand what, what we're saying. These things are unfamiliar or, or hazy to you. Please do come on a Tuesday night or if you book this week, come the following one. That's okay. But come along to Christianity Explored. It's the most important thing you can possibly understand about the Christian faith. is what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus must suffer and die before glory. That is the only way for anyone to be saved for heaven. But it's also a pattern to follow, he says. So 24 to 27 is the same truth. The disciples, his disciples, you and me, if we're Christians, must suffer, die before glory. Verse uh, 24. Jesus says to his disciples, what he gives are uh, three things the disciples have to do. And then three overlapping reasons why to do them. I'm just going to walk us through them, okay? Three things disciples to do, three reasons to do them. So the three things disciples to do, very straightforward, verse 24. If anyone will come after me, he must, what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What do those mean? Denial, deny himself. Now that is a fairly significant statement, deny himself. The object there 
deny self who you are. So Jesus is not saying, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself chocolate for a period of Lent. You must deny yourself buying a flash car because that would be inappropriate. You must deny yourself a lifestyle of one-night stands. In one sense, those are easy things. Those are easy things. He's not saying, um, I, I want you to give up chocolate for Lent. He's saying, I want you to give up yourself for the rest of your life. Not chocolate for Lent, control for life. It's changing the question. Rather than asking, what would I like to do? It becomes, what does Jesus want me to do? What would I like to do next weekend? What would I like to do with my holiday? What would I like to do with my money? What would I like to do with my life? No, no. Person that I am and gifts that I've got, what would Jesus like me to do? In everything. Give up your self. Your life. Here and now. What does Jesus want me to do? Or to put it another way, I think it's replacing our own ideas, what we think naturally, with the word of God. Having God's truth determine how we think. I was speaking to a chap recently, young man, and he'd only been a Christian a couple of months. And uh, we were talking about uh, his uh, uh, pattern. This is... uh, over the summer, actually, he just, so he doesn't come here, so he's not embarrassing because he's not here tonight. Um, over the summer, I talked to him about, he'd become a Christian about two and a half months earlier, and was describing his regular pattern, and basically he was rarely at church, because he had so many friends, that he was constantly buzzing here to see that person, to Manchester that weekend, to Cardiff that weekend, to Vienna that weekend, to Rome that weekend. Um, so he was just constantly, he wasn't a student, because you know, the... Um, <laughs> bit older than that. But he was just buzzing here, there. I said, so in a month, how often are you at church? Oh, most of the time. Well, just get your diary out and have a look. Ooh, uh, yeah, not so much, actually. I've got once that month, twice, oh, yeah, probably 50%, I guess, over the last two and a half months. I said, okay, look, you've only just become a Christian, but let me just, let's just open up a little bit of Bible, Hebrews chapter 10. I do not give up in the habit of meeting one another, but as long as today is called today, uh, meet together, encourage one another. We opened that up and looked at that. Said, so you, you know, really, as a Christian, you should go to church to encourage one another. Oh yeah, yeah, I see that. Right, well, that's everything's got to change, isn't it? I can't go away every weekend. Okay, thanks for showing me that. Now, not all of us are quite so receptive all of the time. <laughs> Often we read something in the Bible and think. And we sort of slightly wrestle against it. But for him, it's, oh, okay, I see that now. My ideas, just replaced by the word of God. Because I follow him now, I'm going to deny myself and follow Jesus. Very simple. Sometimes it is that simple. Deny myself. Second thing, take up cross. If anyone will come after me, he must, or she must take up their cross. Now this slightly ratchets up the demand, I think. Taking up your cross is a public thing. You do it in front of people. And the the end point of taking up a cross is death. So this, I think, is ratcheting up a little bit. So question, what does it mean to take up a cross? I think the answer would be uh, aligning yourself with Jesus Christ publicly at the risk of rejection or persecution, is to take up your cross. 
Now, we use the phrase pathetically sometimes. We all have our crosses to bear, don't we? You know what? I, I go to work on the northern line. We all have our crosses to bear. Um, <laughs> no, we use that in a slightly trivial, trivial, flippant sort of way. To take up your cross in the first century, you would then pick up the crossbar of it and drag it through the streets to the place of death. And people would mock you and humiliate you and spit at you. Deeply unpleasant as you take up your cross to the place of death. Now this is quite a big deal he's talking about. Practically, I guess you'd have to say, a cross is imposed upon you. No one in the first century would choose, what are you going to do tonight? Well, I thought I might die on a cross. No one chooses it. What do you want to do with your life? I want to die on a cross. No one chooses that. Apart from Jesus. But um, it's imposed upon you. It is rejection. It is punishment upon you. So it's not something to desire. And yet at the same time, Jesus says, you have to take it up. If anyone will come after me, he must take up his cross. How do you take up something that is rejection or take up something imposed upon you? Presumably it is a decision to live distinctively to align yourself with Jesus Christ at the risk of rejection, humiliation. So um, uh, some of us here were here yesterday morning, men's breakfast, and uh, one of the guys talking, talking about how you know he's very, very keen, as, as soon as possible, to, to let it be known he's a Christian. And in some circumstances, okay, this is not always his first sentence, he said, but sometimes... Not with clients, perhaps, but sometimes it's appropriate to say, hello, my name's Mike, I'm a Christian. He says, sometimes you can do that, but it needs to come fairly fairly soon afterwards. I want to be known as a Christian. I think that is taking up your cross, only the, the willingness for that. Aligning yourself publicly with Jesus Christ at the risk of rejection. So presumably part of that would mean if you've recently moved to London and you meet people at work, or at college, saying, hello, my name's Peter, I'm a Christian. It doesn't have to be your first sentence, I'm not saying that. But the longer you leave it, the harder it is to say. Take up your crosses to align yourself with him. Possibly. There's rejection, we just sung that, didn't we? Very strong, what wonderful, wonderful words. But we strung that, we sung that, I can't even find it. But um, uh, there's rejection. Rejection comes. To take up your cross then, to publicly align yourself with Jesus Christ and risk the hostility of the world. Tangent, please note, Jesus is not talking about cross-imposing upon others, but cross-bearing. Please don't misunderstand his words here. When he says anyone come after me, he must take up his cross, be willing to die essentially, that is not a call to martyrdom. So, uh, as jihadists would say, I'm going to impose cross upon other people. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to impose suffering and pain upon others. Jesus never says that. He says, this is cross-bearing, taking pain upon yourself. There is nothing in here which could be construed to say, attack others. It's cross-bearing. It is receiving humiliation and pain. Certainly not giving it. Take up your cross. Third and last little element he tells us to do. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and lastly, follow me. 
And I'd say without this third, I think the other two would be fairly crippling. (laughs) Because he's saying, follow me. The person, Jesus Christ. It is the very presence of Jesus with you that turns discipleship from drudgery into delight. He is with you. His last words in Matthew's Gospel, surely I am with you always to the end of the age. He is with us. Follow him. Him. Not follow a creed, not follow conservatism, not follow liberalism, not follow socialism. Follow him. Personal. The man. Okay, practically, what does it mean to follow him? Well, I guess in the first century, if you followed after a religious teacher, you did a couple of things that would be obvious. You would say, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in your company, rabbi. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life obeying your teaching. I think Jesus is saying just the same thing. Follow me. Spend the rest of your life in my company. Talk to me. Listen to me. And spend the rest of your life obeying my teaching. That's what it means to follow me. If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's a big ask. So then he says, again, here are three reasons. They're overlapping, very similar really. But here are three reasons why that's a wonderful thing, the obvious thing that you must do. There's one in, one in the next few verses. So verse 25, verse 26, verse 27, verse 25. Let's run through them. Verse 25, here's the first reason to do such a thing. For, because, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Now, lose life for Jesus, he's just told us what that means. To lose your life here and now for his sake, for Jesus, is to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. So presumably to save your life now is to live for yourself, refuse to be aligned with him, and follow your own desires here and now. Presumably in context, that's what it means to save your life. Or in a sentence, to love and pursue your own pleasure and ease more than you love and pursue Jesus. Don't do that, he says. If you lose your life now, sorry, if um, verse 26, if you can gain the whole world now, I'm so sorry, verse 25, I'm just skipping around. Verse 25, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Oh, it's a very simple picture, isn't it? Um, you might think of it this way. So uh, you have a smartphone, and uh, for some reason you're a little odd. So you're wandering along the road playing whatever, Fruit Ninja or Angry Birds or whatever your thing is or the latest thing. And you're wandering along the road and you're very engrossed in this because you're up to a highest score. And someone yells at you, watch out, because a car's coming towards you and you have a choice. You can ignore them, save your life in Angry Birds and die physically. (laughs) Or you can watch out, heat them, lose your life in Angry Birds but escape the car. Which is the more obvious thing to do? High score? Live. That's what Jesus is saying. You can save your life now, but you know how long this life is in the scheme of eternity? Less than that. Why would you save your life now and lose it in eternity? That's ridiculous. 
throw your life away on a game of Angry Birds. It's the same difference. It's the same silly mistake to make. Why would you do that? Or verse 26, he puts it slightly differently. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Again, to gain the whole world, he's not saying you conquer the world like a Bond villain. He's just saying you live for yourself. And self-centered careerists will often make good progress in this world and be successful. But if you do that at the price of your soul, oh, you're a fool, says Jesus. Uh, Leo Tolstoy, uh, the, uh, the Russian novelist, wrote a very famous short story. You may have read it. Uh, how much... Um, how much land does a man need? It's the story of Pahum, the farmer, and uh, he's in Russia, uh, and um, he wants to buy some land. He's doing okay. It's quite a long, short story, but... Yeah. Um, so, more. But anyway, towards the end, he's done okay, and he's earned about a thousand rubles in his life, but he wants more land, and he hears about this, this tribe, the Bashkirs, who are a little simple, but quite generous, and own a huge amount of land. And the deal with the Bashkirs is this, you give them a thousand rubles, and you can buy from them as much land as you can walk around in a single day. All that you walk around is yours. And as you walk around, you take a spade and you just dig little piles of earth every so often. The only um, requirement is you start off on top of a hill with them and you have to get back to that hill before the sun sets. So Paul meets these, arranges that he's going to do it the next day. He goes to bed a very excited man. How many miles can I walk in a day? How much land can I get? He thinks it's 35 miles I can, I can do in a day. I've got all day. I'll take provisions, a rucksack, my flask of water. I'm going to get a long, long way around it. So he rises at, day's, at daybreak, meets the tribal elders on top of the mountain, of the top of this little hill, plunks down in a bag his thousand rubles, and they say, as soon as the sun comes up, off you go. Remember, you must be back before the sun sets. The sun rises, and he's off. And he's walking very quickly. March, march, dig, march, dig. And he's doing quite well. By lunchtime, he sort of turns and looks and thinks, maybe I should turn around. But this land, it's getting better and better. A little bit more. So he turns on a little bit more. Maybe I should turn around now. No, I, I can get a bit more. Bigger and bigger. And so he gets an enormous plot of land he's carving out for himself. And then he gets to the late afternoon and he starts to panic and thinks, I might not get back and then I lose everything. I don't get any land and I lose my money. So he starts to walk a bit faster. Then he throws off his coat. He throws off his boots and he starts to run and he throws off his water flask and he's sprinting as the sun sets and he gets lower and lower. And then he can see the back ears on this little hill and he's getting closer towards them. And he reaches the hill, he reaches the bottom of the hill just before, just after the sun has set. And Tolstoy describes him collapsing and crying in tears because he's lost everything. But on top, the, uh, the tribe shouted at him, no, 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 you're fine. The sun has set down there, but its sun still shines on top. Come on, come to the top of the hill. <gasps> he's enormously relieved and sort of scrambles finally. His last few ounces of breath and energy scrambles up the hill, makes it and collapses on top of his money. And they congratulate him, say, well done, well done. And blood spurts from his mouth and he dies. And Tolstoy's final line is, how much land does a man need? 
six foot from head to toe. As the tribe bury him with his shovel. And Jesus says, What good is it if you gain the whole world now but lose your soul? Why would you make that swap? Verse 27 is his final reason. Verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he'll reward each person according to what he's done. Jesus will return and reward according to how we've lived. Again, remember the balance. No to cheap grace. But he's, this is not um, this is not legalism. You're not rewarded. You're not given eternal life because of the way you've behaved. Not because of what we do. But how we live simply reveals if we follow Jesus Christ. Have we denied ourselves, taken up our cross and followed him? Have we trusted in him as our Lord and Saviour? And has that been obvious in our life because we've spoken to him and we've listened to him? Have you followed me, says Jesus? Each person, in the verse, verse 27, each person, every single person throughout the whole of history and the whole of the globe will stand before him and Jesus will say, and did you follow me? Did you trust in my death in your place? And seek to follow me imperfectly, I know, but seek to follow me as your Lord. Did you follow me? Every person comes before him. Now, I don't know what you make of this, but for, I was, I read this, I mean, it's a fairly crucial passage on discipleship in, in the gospel accounts, and you read this and think, why does Jesus spend so much more time on the penalties of rejecting him rather than the rewards of following him? I don't know. Maybe we're stubborn. And we need to hear the threat of punishment a lot, as well as the promise of reward. I don't know. I mean, there's a promise of reward here. That's wonderful. That's exciting. He will reward each person. Wonderful. But don't throw away your life in eternity just for your piddly little period of time here, says Jesus. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. How much is your life worth? Jesus would say, I value your life so much, I would leave eternity in glory, past, and come down and die for you. That's how much I think your soul is worth. Why would you value it so much less than me? And just live for 70, 80 years now and lose your soul in eternity. I value your soul so much I'll die for it. Why would you value it so much less? If anyone will come after me, he must, must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For years now I've carried round that I shoved in my Bible and I return to them every now and again. So words by a man called Howard Guinness. Howard Guinness worked uh, with the student movement in the UK in the 1930s. And in 1939, he wrote a book called Sacrifice. It's quite a well-known book. You may have read it at some point. If you're a student, read Sacrifice. It's challenging. It's not perfect, actually. Uh, so maybe I shouldn't recommend all of it. But um, uh, there's one section which is very striking. He asks a load of questions. Let me ask you these, then we're finished. He just puts it this way. Where is our self-denial? Where is our carrying of the cross? 
Where is our following after Jesus? A crucified saviour will have nothing of a self-satisfied, self-indulgent, worldly people. Where are the young men and women of this generation who would hold their lives cheap and be faithful to him even if it cost them their lives? Where are those who risk their lives for Christ's sake, living dangerously and be reckless in his service? Where are his lovers, those who love him and the souls of men more than they love their own comfort and reputation and ease? Where are the men who say no to self, who take up Christ's cross to bear it after him, who are willing to be nailed to it in their colleges, in their offices, be it in this country or on the mission field, who are willing to bleed and suffer and die? for his cause? Where are the men and women who have seen the king in his beauty and by whom henceforth all else is counted but rubbish that they may know Christ? Where are the adventurers? Where are the explorers? Where are the buccaneers for God who count one human soul of much greater worth than the rise and fall of an empire? Where are the men and women who are willing to pay the price of vision? Where are the men of prayer? Where are God's men and women in this day? who will take up, who deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. That's always been a challenging little passage that Jesus has recorded for us. Suffering, death, glory. That was his path. He says, if you'll follow me, you'll know that too. Let's pray together. Our loving Father, here's an uncomfortable challenge from the lips of Jesus. And you know our hearts, and many of us would prefer cheap grace, forgiveness, but at no cost, little cost to you, to Jesus, and a little cost to ourselves. But that's not what you call us to. Costly grace. Following Jesus, not just as Saviour, but as Lord. Meeting with Him. Being transformed by Him. To live for his glory. Father, it's a bold challenge he puts to us. We have very clearly in our minds the pattern of eternity and having glory then, not glory now. Would we be encouraged? We don't do this on our own, but we follow him. What a spirit dwells within us. What a father loves us yet. What a saviour who died to win us. And Father, knowing that, would we not fret, but trust in him and give our lives to following our crucified Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose precious name we pray. Amen.